You know, it seems very popular these days in our culture. Uh, people are very interested in their lives, the journey that they're going through in their lives, and finding their identity. I know when I used to, when I was a kid, your identity didn't mean a whole lot. Uh, you were what you were, and you got through life uh, the best you could. But all of a sudden today, people are thinking about their personal identity. There used to be a TV show, I don't know if it's still on, but it was called, Who Do You Think You Are? I don't know if any of you ever saw it, but uh, they would have a person come on the show and their researchers would find out everything they could find out about this person's life, their, their history, their ancestry, and they would kind of present it to this person as the show went along, and this person would find out who, who they were, where they came from, who their parents and grandparents were, and what they did for a living, and all those sorts of things. They would delve into the person's history to find out or to help them understand who they were. It seems like everyone wants to tell them who they are. They want somebody to tell them who they are, where they belong, and how they relate to the world. And like I said, it's funny how society has changed because years and years ago, nobody thought much about such questions. They just went through life and got through it the best they could. And you know, if, you, if your father was a, a worker in the mills, chances are you became a worker in the mills. And if your mother, mother worked in a bakery, chances are you would follow in her steps and work in a bakery. But times have changed. Some places that people look for their identity is their career. You know, maybe they worked for GM, maybe they worked in the steel mills. That was your identity. You know, I'm a steel worker, I'm an auto worker, I'm this, I'm that. So it was either your career that gave you your identity, maybe your financial success, your status in life, that made you who you were. Maybe it was your relationship status. You know, people would say, well, I'm married, I'm divorced, I'm this, I'm that. I'm a cancer survivor, I was in the military. That gave them their identity in life. Maybe it was their appearance. I remember when I was a kid, if I had a friend who was short, they'd call him shorty. <laughs> or somebody who was really thin, they'd call him skinny. And you know skinny, don't you? Oh yeah, I remember him. That gave you your identity. Maybe it was the school that you went to. You know, to this day, people wear sweatshirts, Ohio State, because they went to Ohio State. That gave them their identity in life. Maybe it was your personal reputation whatever. Any or all of these may feel like something solid to plant your identity on as a human being, but none of them are permanent. So any of these things in your life, whether it was your job, your marriage, your reputation, any of them could change without warning. You know, you could work in the steel mills and what happened in the 70s? Well, all the steel mills shut down. And look what happened to uh, Lordstown. Nobody's working there anymore because it shut down, went out of business. If you base your identity on things like success or wealth or power or your physical appearance, you're setting yourself up for a great disappointment. 
A sudden job loss could leave you questioning your choices in life. What do I do now? One piece of gossip about you could destroy your reputation, even if it wasn't true. And your appearance will change as you grow older. <laughs> so you can't base your reputation and your identity on those things. Followers of Jesus, which we all are, are called to find our identity in him. So you see, when somebody asks you, well, who are you? <laughs> you know, tell me about your life. One of the first things that should come to our mind is not necessarily any of those other things we mentioned, even though there's nothing wrong with those. You know, I've been an athlete all my life, still try to do a little bit of, of that sort of thing, but it's getting harder and harder. So when you're in your 70s, you're not much of an athlete, but you still try. Followers of Jesus are called to find their identity in him. So what should first come to mind when somebody asks us our identity, who we are, well, we're followers of Jesus. But we're even more than that. We're not just followers. We're in Christ, as the Bible teaches us. God is unchanging. He is reliable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So our relationship with him is not something that's going to fade away, ever. We find our identity in God, and specifically in Jesus Christ. If you find your identity in him, you will never ultimately be let down because he's proven time and time again to be trustworthy. Trustworthy. It's a sound place to put your identity and your reputation. Jesus is our rock. It's important as you define your identity that God isn't just part of who you are. You know, some people might say, well, I'm a Christian or I'm religious or I'm spiritual. Understanding your identity in God starts with understanding who he is, first and foremost. Understanding what he says about himself. Understanding what God says about you. Your identity can be defined by who God is making you to be in his image. We know we were created in the image of God, but we're also being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. So that's where our, our identity is, and that's something that is not going to change, that is going to continue on. We're not going to outgrow it. We're not going to get too old for it. In fact, it's going to go with us for all eternity. So let me ask the question this morning or this afternoon. How does God see you? How does God see you? To be able to understand your identity as a follower of Jesus, need to understand how he sees you. So we're going to go through several points here. How does God see you? It's not based on what you have accomplished, but rather on what God has done for you. God's word has a lot to say about how he views his people. So let's take a look at what he says about you. And I'm not just talking about Christians in general. I'm talking about you, Eddie, and you, Brian, and you, Dave, and you, Jen. What he thinks about you personally. Because God doesn't, does identify you as an individual. 
You're part of the body of Christ. You're part of his church. But God has a personal relationship with you. He knows your name. He knows it well. He knows all about you. Now, this, is gonna, this sermon is going to take a couple of uh, weeks to, to accomplish because there's a lot to say. So the first way that God sees you, I want you to know that you are personally loved by God. You are personally loved by God. Now, we know that God is love, and he's got a lot of love to share, but I'm talking about you. God personally loves you, and he knows you by name. So just imagine that for a while. The God who created the whole universe, everything that exists, the most powerful being ever, he loves you personally, by name. He loves you, not just people in general, but you as a person. He cares about your life and wants to be part of it. He's known you all your life. He's known you even before you were born. He knew you because he knows the past, the present, and the future. He knows everything about you. Let's look at a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to begin in verse 4. God here explains the kind of love that he has for you personally. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. This is God's love, and thank God for it. Paul tells us here, love is patient. This is God's love. That's what we need, patience, don't we? All through our lives, we've needed God's patience with us. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. This is God's love we're talking about. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. So whatever God seeks for us is in our best interest. It is not easily angered, thank God for that, because we've done a lot in our lives to anger God. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's God's love for us, for you individually. He keeps no record of the sins you've committed in your life, the mistakes that you've made. He keeps no record of that. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's God's love for you individually. Can you imagine being loved like this? We are loved like this by God. Amen. Just most people in this world today, if they knew that they were loved like this, it would change their lives. It really would. This is an accurate description of God's love for you. Now, this is a passage that is often read at weddings as we encourage, you know, bride and groom to try to love each other this way. And so often we fail. Humans cannot love perfectly as God loves. You know, we look at the history of our marriages, my wife and I, and, you know, we've made mistakes along the way. Both of us have. We have strived for a long time to have the kind of love for each other that God has for us, 
but we come up short so many times. And we should strive to love one another in this way, but unfortunately, being human, we often fall short. If you are in relationship with God and experience His love, which we all have, it should empower you to love others the way God loves you. That's why Paul wrote this. That's why it's recorded in our Bibles. It is God's love for us, and we should use it as an example to love one another. Starting at home, starting with our marriages, our families, but it should also reach out to other people in our lives. <clears throat> so this is God's love. It uh, includes all of the things we strive for in our Christian lives. But this is the kind of love that we can count on from God on a daily basis. He doesn't change. This is the way he is. The second scripture we'll look at here is in 1 John 4, verse 18. So we're talking about how we are personally loved by God and what that love is like. In many ways, it's beyond our comprehension. You know, we've tried to be loving people all of our lives, but when we look at how God loves us, it just kind of blows you away because we know we're so undeserving of this kind of love. First John 4, verse 18, John says this about God's love. There is no fear in love. We're talking about God's love here. There's no fear in love. But perfect love, God's love, drives out fear in our lives because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So since God loves you personally the way he does, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. <laughs> now, I was raised in a religion, Catholicism, that taught a lot about fear. I don't know how many times in grade school or at church services, mass, uh, the priest or the nuns would explain to us in detail what hell was like and how you don't want to be there and how unless you change your ways, you're going to end up there. And if hell wasn't bad enough, well, I mean, there was also a place called purgatory where you weren't good enough to get to heaven, but you weren't bad enough to get to hell. So there was a middle of the road place, which was pretty bad in and of itself too. And you might end up being there for years and centuries to kind of pay off uh, some sort of uh, punishment that you deserve. So there was a lot of fear. I grew up with a lot of fear. In, in my religious beliefs. But now I understand that since God loves us the way that he does, there, there's no room for fear in our lives, for any fear. Because perfect, God's perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And God isn't planning punishment for you. Why? Because you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior and his death on the cross paid all the punishment that you would have coming because of your sins in your life. And there's nothing more that you have to do. Jesus paid the price for us. So when you understand that God loves you no matter what, you no longer need to be afraid of your failings, causing him to love you any less because he doesn't. 
You know, in our lives as Christians, we don't get in, I like to use the phrase because it was used so often when I was young, we don't get in God's doghouse. There used to be a saying that you get in somebody's doghouse means that they're mad at you, they're upset with you, you've, you've offended them, you've done something wrong against them, so you end up in the doghouse outside. You're not allowed in the house, you've got to stay in the doghouse. God doesn't have a doghouse. We can't get on God's bad side, no matter what we do. We no longer need to be afraid of our failings causing him to love us any less because he doesn't love us any less. That's God. He's different from human beings. He says, you know, don't think of me as a human being because I'm so much higher than you are, and he truly is. If you can only know the depths of God's love for you, you would have nothing to fear. You don't get in God's bad graces, okay? You're always in his good graces. God is aware of your sins, and he still loves you. He knows your sins from the past. He knows your sins in the present. And he knows the sins that you're going to commit in the future. And you know what? He still loves you beyond anything that you can imagine. Thank God that he is not human. Because we have so much baggage in our lives thinking about not only the stupid things we've done in our past, but things that other people have done to us in our past. We not only think about the things we're doing wrong today and the sins we struggle with, but we also think about people who are upset with us today and uh, hate us or uh, are offended by us. And we fear what we might still do in the future. And you know what? We're still going to stumble and fall and sin in the future. And God already knows it because he's in the future. But you know what? He still loves us. He loves us dearly. He doesn't just put up with us. He truly loves us dearly. So you are secure in your relationship with God. He wants you to know that. He will continue to love you because he's God. And he has promised to do that. I want to turn to Romans 8 and then verse 35. Paul said something very encouraging to us because this love that we have from God will never stop. Uh, there are no pauses in it. There are no intervals in it. No matter what kind of situation we get ourselves into, that love is there forever. Paul asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We think sometimes our sins might. We think sometimes uh, because of the situations in our life, we kind of stray from God. And most all of us have had periods in our life where we've done that. And maybe we didn't go to church for a few years or whatever. But no matter what, nothing is going to separate us from the love of Christ. Paul goes on to say, shall trouble separate you from the love of, of, of Christ? Or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So if any of those things happen to you, do you think that, well, maybe God doesn't love me anymore? Because why would this happen in my life? God's taken a pause from me or he's tired of me or he's trying to teach me a lesson here. So if bad things happen in your life, perchance, you have an accident or an illness or 
does that mean God doesn't love you anymore? No, it doesn't. He still loves you. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you know what? Not even you can separate yourself from the love of Christ. No matter what sort of situation you get yourself into. And you maybe even did it purposely. It wasn't even an accident. God still loves you. You are secure in your relationship with God. Nothing can separate you from his love. There's nothing powerful enough to separate you from God's love. Even when things are difficult or you feel far from God, it's not because God stopped loving you. God will never stop loving you no matter what you do. Amen. Doesn't that give you just a great feeling? Amen. And we're called to have faith in that because this is God's word and God cannot lie. And furthermore, God does not change. All of this has been afforded to you through God's mercy and God's grace. And because you made that decision to accept Jesus as your Savior. Now, the fact of the matter is that God loves all people. You know, the scripture said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die, to die for our sins. But it, until you hear the gospel and you agree to it and you accept Jesus as your Savior, you got to humble yourself and admit that you're a sinner and that you need a savior and claim Jesus as your one and only savior, you don't really feel the reality of the love of God for you. So that's something that you grow in. And that's what we're all doing. And I hope this message is helpful for you today to understand that your identity is in God. You may look at physical things in your life and say, well, yeah, I'm this, I'm that, or I came from that country, or, you know, I had that disease. You might think of that as something that identifies you, but it's God where our identity is. Let's look at what David said in Psalm 5, beginning in verse 11. Psalm 5 and verse 11. David said this, but let all who take refuge in you, you speaking to God, be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. Now, this is one of the benefits of God's love for you. God's love is not just a warm feeling that, that we can all feel, although that's a part of it. God's love is a powerful force in your life, protecting you and comforting you. So God loves you so much that when he sees you struggle or when he sees you threatened in your life, through his love, he puts a shield of protection around you. And that's literal. That's literal. 
And a lot of us could tell stories of things that we've experienced in their life where we're convinced that it was God's intervention in our life that saved us or preserved us. God's love is a powerful force protecting and comforting us. So being in God's love is a position that is not just joy, but it's also safety. When you run to God for protection, he surrounds you with a shield of love, as David explains here. Just dwell on that thought and let his love flood your mind with a sense of peace and comfort. So the fact that you love God, no, I should say the fact that God loves you should give us a sense of peace and security. And we have all been protected in ways through our lives that we may not even be aware of. I can explain to you a couple of, you know, accident situations out driving uh, my car over the years in ministry and even before I became a minister where I know that God preserved my life. And I could have easily been killed. But he had his purpose to work out in my life. And uh, I'm just humbled by it. I'm thankful for it. So it just gives me more encouragement and more enthusiasm to do whatever work he has for me to do. Whether it's good works or whether it's ministry or whatever. Being the best husband I can be. And I'm so thankful. So... The fact that God loves you provides a supernatural protection for you. Does that mean you're never going to get sick? No, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean that you're never someday going to die unless Jesus returns? You will have your time. God knows exactly when it's going to be. But in the meantime, he's there protecting you. Let's also look at Psalm 36. Again, David speaking to God. David felt God's love, as we should as well, and find our identity in it. This is what David says, Psalm 36, verse 5, Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. Please, uh, people rather take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So notice, not only is God's love big, not only is it personal, but it's unfailing. It's unfailing. It's never going to end. He's going to love us for all eternity as he does now. And just the the fact, like I said earlier, that God knows us inside out. He knows our bad attitudes. He knows our stubbornness. Uh, He knows everything that we've done throughout our life. In fact, who knows, God may have even been involved in our formation in our mother's womb before we were born. David talked about that a little bit, that somehow God formed us made us look the way we look, made us as tall as we are, as, as big as we are. Uh, you know, whatever talent we have, he certainly has given us that. Whether we have musical talent or cooking talent or, you know, whatever he's blessed us with. We are what we are because of God. We find our identity in him. 
None of this has been our own doing, but we've used the gifts that God has given us. Sure, we had the opportunity to uh, promote the gifts he's given us or develop the gifts he's given us, but it's great when you in life find out what your gifts are and it should give you joy to use those things that God has built into you. And we all have a gift of one sort or another. So God will not let you down because his love cannot fail. His love for you personally. You've probably been hurt or betrayed by someone you love at some point in your life. It happens because we're physical, we're human. Loving and trusting people can be risky. And we've all learned lessons like that over our lives. Once someone hurts you, it becomes harder to open up to others. But in contrast, God's love is truly unconditional. He never fails you or betrays you. You do not need to hold back in your relationship with God out of fear that he's going to let you down sometime. He won't. Everything that he does, we pray, is according to his will. And his will is for our best interest. Even though sometimes it means going through rough times, having disappointments in this life, God is always working behind the scenes for our best interest. Because he sees us as spiritual members of the kingdom of God for all eternity. He sees beyond our death, beyond our resurrection from the dead, he sees us dwelling with him in joy and in peace for all eternity. And he's going to work out whatever he needs to work out in our lives to provide that blessing for us. And sometimes we don't get the big picture and we don't see into the future. We just see the here and now. We suffer with the trials we're going through. We suffer with the aches and pains that we have. And sometimes we lose sight. We can't see as God sees. He sees the big picture, okay? And we put our trust and confidence in him that no matter what we face in this life, it's going to work out for the best. We had a sermon last week, Day by Day it was called, where God gets us through each day. He gives us the strength we need for that day. He gives us the grace we need for that day. And life is day by day. And it's leading eventually to eternal life with God in his kingdom. So God never fails you. He never betrays you. You do not need to hold back in your relationship with God. You don't need to hide everything from anything from him because he knows it all about you. You don't have to fudge the truth when you're talking to him because he knows how things really are. And he is trustworthy. Though people may let you down, God never will let you down. So in finding our identity in God, the first one that we go to, you know, even before we talk about our parents and our grandparents and how they came over from the old country and, uh, you know, what your dad did for a living, what your mother did for a living, uh, where you went to school, where you worked in your life, before any of that, as a Christian, we find our identity in God because that is an unchanging uh, place and person to go to and what God has made us to be. So we're going to delve a little bit more into this in the next couple of weeks, finding our identity in God, finding our identity in Jesus Christ. 
But the first step, as we talked about today, is you need to know and be reminded that you're personally loved by God in a way greater than any human being could ever love you. And even though human beings may let us down, even those who love us, God never will. He's never going to leave us holding the bag. He's never going to forsake us or turn his back on us. And we don't have to fear him. We can be perfectly open with him. Don't try to hide anything from him. Seek his help. Seek his strength on a daily basis. Now we're going to have a communion service today, as you see we've got set up here. So as we come to the table, we're coming more personally into the presence of God. You know, at the Last Supper, Jesus had the table set up in advance, and he had planned out at the end of the meal, as they finished eating, that he was going to do something new. He was going to set aside a couple of symbols for the apostles, and hence for all Christians down throughout history to our day today. And the symbols that he set aside were symbols that they were going to partake of, a piece of bread and a cup, fruit of the vine. And Jesus knew that they were going to need to have some physical contact with him on a regular basis. So it was instituted in the church as a, as a way to go, as a way to be. And throughout the history of the Christian church, there has been communion service. And to commune means to relate to one another. So in a special way, with these symbols, when we come to the communion table, we're relating to Jesus Christ in a very close and personal way. And these are symbols that he instituted and set up. So when we come up to the table today, and we invite you all to come up, based on your free will, you choose to either come up or, or not come up. When you come up here and partake of these symbols, you're partaking of Jesus Christ. You're relating, you're communing with him in a very private and personal way. And let this communion service today remind us of this personal relationship with God, his personal love for us, not just love for all Christians around the world, and he, he feels that too. But as we brought out in the sermon, it's a personal relationship. And when we come up to the table here, we're telling God, I love you, and I get it, and I'm coming up here to show you that I love you, and I want my relationship with you to grow, to become deeper, more personal, because when we do that, it pleases God very much. That's what it's all about for him, his relationship with us. And he even called us individually, and he sustains us on a daily basis through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So when we come up to the table, just come up with the attitude that, yes, God, you love me, I get it, I love you, and I really do. And uh, I look forward to growing closer to you throughout the rest of my life. We know that the bread represents the body of Jesus, which is broken for us, his death on the cross. Because if he didn't die on the cross for us, none of this would be possible. We wouldn't be here in this room uh, the penalty that we all owed had to be paid somehow. And now we stand before God, the Father, righteous. Jesus has made us righteous. He's given us his righteousness. There's nothing we've done to deserve this. It's all based on God's grace and mercy. And of course, the cup of uh, the fruit of the vine, as the Bible calls it, 
represents Jesus' shed blood. Uh, when he died for us, he shed his blood. He died. He literally died. He got, he substituted for us in what we deserved. So, uh, is the ultimate example of God's grace and love. So, uh, as we come here, and I, I hope that you'll come forward and partake of these symbols and just remind God that you love him very much and you want to be a part of this and you're thankful for all that he's done in your life. So let's pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the communion service that Jesus instituted at the Last Supper. And even though we don't understand it fully or maybe as deeply as possible, we understand enough. When we come forward to this table, we're saying, yes, Lord, you are my Savior. I thank you for your sacrifice for my personal sins, not just the sins of the world, but my personal sins. I messed up my life so many times, and you have given me a way to be saved. And I thank you for that, and I'll thank you for all eternity, for your sacrifice for my personal sins. And uh, let this uh, service, this communion service, be a blessing to all of us here. Help it to sustain us, Father, to encourage us, and to remind us of our relationship with you. So thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.